few weeks, we are kind of transporting you guys sort of into almost like a seminary Bible class. And we just want to cover some theological topics in these few weeks that maybe are not topics that we typically cover on a Sunday, like during a sermon. And so um, the lineup that we have for you for the next few weeks is today we're going to talk about atonement theories. Next week, we're going to talk about baptism. The week after that, we're going to talk about the canon of scripture. And then the fourth week is going to be a panel. We'll have all the teachers come back, and it'll be a Q&A. So um, as we're going through this series, uh, I really want to encourage you guys, if you have questions, like write them down. And so basically, you can submit your questions. I mean, you could probably just ask it on the week of the panel as well. But if you want to get a better answer, you could submit it beforehand, right? So um, if you have questions as we go through these conversations, and I expect that you should have conversations if you're really engaging with it. Um, one, you could submit it on our Facebook group or through our Instagram. Or two, if you want to maintain some anonymity or you just want to go low tech, uh, write it on a scrap piece of paper <laughs> and put it in the offering box back there in the hallway, okay? And so it would be great if we could collect any questions that you guys have as we go through this series. And so... I have, I wish I could say that today is going to be the definitive conversation on atonement theories, but realistically, based on time, it's going to be a very high-level overview. But before we get into that, I already don't have enough time to cover this topic, but I think it's important enough for us. I want to talk just very briefly about maybe kind of our approach to theological discourse here at One Life City Church. And, um, and so I think it's important for us to, to talk about this, because I think one of the things here at this church that we are striving for, and some of you guys who have been here for a while have probably noticed that there's kind of a range of theological perspectives here, even amongst the teaching team, right? And, and so, you know, one of the things I think that we're striving for here is to really be a place where there, there is discourse, where we can really engage with the different, like kind of the range and the spectrum of theological beliefs, right? That, and we would never want to give the impression that, hey, you know what, just believe whatever. <laughs> like, that, that's not what we're about here. It's not like you can just believe whatever you want about everything. But we, we want to acknowledge that there are genuine and sincere believers who have differences of opinion and differences in interpretation on you know, a wide variety of theological perspectives, that it's not just everybody down the line 100% agrees on all these things, right? And so we try to kind of respect that here and acknowledge that and, and give uh, space to, to engage that and have discourse around that in, in a way that, you know, is uh, basically we're just trying to figure out how can we come together and basically, you know, figure out a way where we can engage and, and maybe even disagree on certain theological perspectives to investigate it together in a way where we can all continue to live together, worship together uh, in peace, right? And so that's kind of the spirit, I think, that we have here. And so, you know, I mean, if you come here and it's like, maybe sometimes somebody gets up here and says something and you're like, huh? <laughs> is, that, is that what we believe here? Like, th there's a reason why there's, you know, like, it's okay if sometimes you, you, you hear something in conversation or even up here where you're like, okay, I have to think about that a little bit more. I think I need to study about that a little bit more. I think I'm going to ask a question to the teacher about that. That's okay. That, that's what we're about here, okay? And so that's my just very mini kind of uh, disclaimer about our approach to theolo theological discourse here. Okay, so let's jump into today's topic. So today we are talking about atonement theories. So first off, let's just be clear. What are we talking about when we're talking about the atonement? 
So really, basically, what we're talking about, we're talking about the death of Jesus. Well, maybe I should say the life and death of Jesus on the cross. And, and I think the two basic questions we're asking around that is just, one, why did Jesus die on the cross? <laughs> why did he die on the cross? And two, like, how does it save us? Like, what, what does it accomplish for us? And so those are kind of the two basic questions that we're examining when we're talking about the atonement and atonement theories. And I think a lot of you guys here might be surprised to find that there have actually been a few, several uh, different theories proposed about the atonement throughout church history. So I don't know if you've ever heard that before or were aware of that, but there, are, there is actually a spectrum of kind of atonement theories and, and kind of answering this question, why did Jesus die on the cross? How does it save us? Like, what does it accomplish for us? And so I want to give you guys just a spoiler alert. If you're about to check out, you're like, man, that was, you know, I, I'm, I'm ready to start checking out here. And so I'll just give you the spoiler. This is where we're going to end up. So if you want to rejoin us in 15 minutes from now, you know, <laughs> mentally. Um, the spoiler is that all of these atonement theories that we're going to talk about have some basis in Scripture, right? All of them have some merit, though not, they're not all equal. I wouldn't say that at all. But all of them have some merit in terms of scriptural support. And I think we need all of them to help us to really appreciate the full depths of the atonement. Okay, so that's where we're going to land. That's where we're going to end up. And so let's kind of just start breaking these down. So, I mean, this is probably not a complete list of a different atonement theories, but I think these are the main ones. And, and I'm, I'm kind of covering these in sort of a uh, chronological order, just how, how they've appeared throughout uh, the history of the church. So the, the first atonement theory that we're going to talk about, again, very briefly, uh, embarrass, embarrassingly quickly, but uh, is what some people call Christus Victor. Okay, Christus Victor. So those are all, all the ones that we're going to talk about. So Christus Victor, it, it translated, I think it's Latin, it's translated to Christ the Victorious One. Okay, and so this particular, uh, actually, let's look at a couple of verses. So I think we have two verses that we can look at. This, this is just two out of many verses that we can look at in scripture that kind of support this atonement theory. So the first, I think the first one's in Hebrews. Um, and yeah, let's go ahead. I'll just go ahead and read that out loud. You can follow along. So Hebrews chapter 2, 14 through 15. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity so that by his death, he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. Okay, and then there's one more in Colossians, Colossians 1, 13 through 14. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And so the, the thing about this particular uh, atonement theory, Christus Victor, is it can kind of lay claim to being sort of the classic view that kind of going back all the way to the, the early, early church, that this was sort of the dominant view that people had of the atonement, this Christus Victor. And basically, the, the idea of it is that it, it pictures sort of, there's this eternal struggle between uh, good and evil, between God and Satan. And so what Jesus was accomplishing with his death on the cross was he was breaking the power of evil. He was breaking the power of darkness and sin and death. That, that something in the spiritual realm shifted when Jesus died on the cross, right? Whereas before there was oppression, there was an oppression and a bondage that humanity was under that we could not escape. But because Jesus died on the cross and he was victorious over Satan, over sin, over death, 
now that that spiritual bondage is broken and there is the ability for us now to turn to Jesus and have new life. Okay, so that's kind of the idea. And so mostly in this view, the, the atonement is, is something that is kind of uh, directed towards Satan almost, right? Like it, it's directed towards Satan. It's something that's accomplished towards him. Uh, just a couple other points here. Um, you know, like in the scriptures, there's several verses where Satan is described as being like the prince of this world or even the god of this world, kind of describing sort of this kind of dominion that he somehow has come to have over the world and over humanity. Um, yeah, uh, ultimately, in this theory, uh, Jesus, he, he, he uh, defeats Satan on the cross. And so the idea is that with the atonement, something changed in the spiritual realm where once there was bondage, now there is release and victory, and we're able to overcome the power of sin and death through Christ, where before we could not. Okay, so that's Christus Victor. Uh, the next one that we're going to talk about is the, what we call the satisfaction uh, theory. So the satisfaction theory is basically the atonement is a means of God maintaining his honor by uh, receiving satisfaction for the wrong that we've done to him in Christ. Okay, let me try to explain it. So let's look at a couple verses. So one I didn't put up here is from Matthew chapter 6, verse 12. It's the Lord's Prayer, you know, that famous line, um, forgive us our debts as we forgive uh, our debtors, right? This idea that we have some sort of debt uh, towards God, right? We, we owe him something. Uh, and then Colossians chapter 2, which we do have up here, verses 13 through 14. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. Right? So there's this idea that we, we, we are indebted to God in some way because of our sin. And so this, uh, this particular theory, it was kind of in response to uh, the, Christus Victor, the Christus Victor theme which in, in that theme, the, the atonement is mostly kind of towards Satan, really. And it, actually, classically, like from the very beginning, there was this idea, like there's, there's few verses in the Bible that talk about how um, Christ has become like a ransom for us, right? He has been given as a ransom for us, right? Or as a payment for us. And so the, the question kind of remains like a payment to who? Right? Who, who is this ransom being paid to? And in the kind of the classic traditional view, like going way back you know, to the early church fathers, they actually thought that, that Christ was a ransom that was being paid to Satan, right? that Satan had dominion over us and over our souls, and the only way that we could be released was a ransom had to be paid, almost like, uh, like, uh, like if you were going to pay for the uh, release of somebody who was a slave. Right? And so that was kind of the, the belief, but they, I think over time, you know, theologians moved away from that because it just seemed weird to think that God somehow owed something to Satan or had to make a payment to Satan to, to, to release you know, his, his people, his creation. Right? And so it became very ambiguous. And so this particular view, the satisfaction view, kind of came up during medieval times, uh, a, a theologian named Anselm. Uh, and he basically kind of came up with this satisfaction theory that, in his view, in his view, uh, sin is primarily a failure to give God his due, and therefore a means by which we dishonor him. 
And therefore, we have injured God's honor, right? So you can kind of see like sort of an honor, shame type dynamic here, right? And so we have not given God his due by, uh, by not living according to, you know, his law, not living according to the way he's created us. And so uh, we haven't given what his due, and so we've injured his honor in some way, okay? That's the idea. Therefore, we've injured God's honor, and not only must we restore to him what belongs to him, but there must be some additional reparation or compensation, kind of, kind of like in a court case, right? Like where if you find, you're found guilty of a crime, a lot of times there's like sort of you, you restore to the person the, what you have stolen from them, but then maybe there's on top of that some sort of punitive like damages that you also pay, right? And so it's kind of this idea, and, and, and people have sort of acknowledged that Anselm is kind of in the context of sort of like this feudal system. And so this idea of like, okay, I have, I have shamed and dishonored the feudal lord, right? And the only way to make it right is satisfaction has to be made. And it kind of reminds me of like, I don't know, there's sort of like this classic thing where, I, I don't even know where it comes from, but like in cartoons and things like that, where like a kind of a British guy would take off a white glove and like slap a guy on his face. And say, I demand satisfaction, right? Kind of this idea like you have, you have injured my, my honor. And I demand satisfaction. And so it's kind of that idea that we, we haven't given God what he was due. And so not only do we have to give God his due, which is our lives and the obedience of our lives, but actually it's more than that. Because we've, we've damaged his honor we, to, to provide true satisfaction. We, we give him his due, but there's something that is needed beyond that. Something that we as human beings cannot actually give to God, right? Because all we're capable of giving him would be actually giving him back what he is due, our lives. But we, we are unable to make satisfaction because we can't give him any more than that. And so in his view, and you can see that this view is very heavily based on logic. Okay? It's a very logical kind of thing. right? He makes a very like, laid out logical argument. Uh, according to this sort of, the, the, where it cashes out logically is, therefore, for us to truly make satisfaction and be reconciled to God in our relationship to him, more than just turning to God in repentance, we need something beyond that, something that only Christ could, could do, right? That he was the one who could come, who, you know, he was, you know, he was a sinless man, so he was not indebted to God. He was able to offer himself as a sacrifice and be sort of that satisfaction that we couldn't offer. So that's kind of where it cashes out. But anyway, so that's the satisfaction um, theory. All right, a couple more. We're trying to move really quickly here. Remember, and if you guys have questions, like feel free, like write them down, pull out your phone while I'm talking. I will not be offended or whatever. Pull it out, just start you know, typing it right before you forget it. Send it now if you want to, go ahead. All right, so the next one, the moral influence theory. So this moral influence theory, this was actually kind of a reaction against the satisfaction theory of Anselm. And so th this theory basically says Jesus' life and death are merely an example of the perfect pursuing transformative love that God has for us in spite of our alienation from him. And it's an example of what it looks like to love God and our fellow man as we were created to. And so a couple of key verses here, 1 John chapter 2, verses 5 and 6. But if anyone obeys his word, love for God is truly made complete in them. This is how we know we are in him. Whoever claims to live in him must live as Jesus did, right? He, he set an example for us, and we must live as Jesus lived. And 1 Peter chapter 2. To this you were called, because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. Okay. 
And so yeah, again, this was mostly a kind of a reaction against Anselm and the satisfaction theory. Like, I guess he was kind of chafing against the idea that somehow God needed something to be able to forgive us. Like, okay, so God, God can't just, like, he's God. He can just forgive us, right? Like, he doesn't need this, like, satisfaction or this, this and that. Like, if God wants to forgive, he can forgive. And so, you know, God does not exact payment or satisfaction for his injured honor to forgive us. Rather, the atonement, it opens us up. So in this view, the atonement is actually mostly directed towards us, towards humanity, right? That when we see the cross and we see Jesus' life and his death, it opens us up to be assured that God uh, loves us. Like, because, you know, I mean, there could be this, this fear that, well, I mean, we've sinned against God. You know, we've turned away from him. Like, I'm afraid of God. I don't know what he will think of me. What, what will I be met with from him if I, if I come to him? And so what the, the atonement and the cross does in this, in this view is that it's an assurance to us. When I look at Jesus and the cross, it's an assurance to me that I know that God loves me. I know that he is per pursuing me. And I know that if I turn to him, that I'll be met with mercy and I'll be met with grace. Right? So one, it's an assurance to me of God's kind of heart towards me. But it's also an example to inspire me. Right, that when I see the way that Jesus lived his life, and when I see the, the obedience of Jesus towards the Father, even to death on the cross, that it inspires something in me. Right? It awakens something in me to, to follow his example and to what it looks like to live truly for God. Right? And so it's this kind of idea of an example. And so in this theory, the atonement does not speak to the ability or inability of God to forgive sins um, you know, without Jesus dying on the cross but rather our need to know the love of God and see it displayed in Christ to be brought to true repentance so that we can be forgiven and it inspires us to live for him. All right, two more. We're almost there. The next one is called the governmental theory, right? The governmental theory, which some of you guys probably hear that word and already hate it. <laughs> but um, it doesn't mean that exactly. So the governmental theory. The atonement is both an encouragement to goodness, but it's also a deterrent from evil. Okay, so a couple of verses here, one from Galatians chapter 3, I think. Is there? Or is there any verses for this one? It's okay. If there isn't, don't worry about it. Oh, okay, cool. Um, Isaiah 42, 21. Okay, yeah, you're right. I, th this is the one that I put there. <laughs> My bad. <laughs> So Isaiah chapter 42, verse 21. This is a very loose connection, okay? This, this particular view is kind of weak on biblical support. So this is a very loose connection, but um, they appeal to this verse as an example of what they mean. So verse, uh, or Isaiah 42, 21. It pleased the Lord for the sake of his righteousness to make his law great and glorious. Okay, I probably could have picked a better version. I think there's another version that uses more, more kind of like governmental language. But anyway, <laughs> I'll just explain it. <laughs> In this view, it basically says that we can't just look at God as like creator or father or even, you know, God who loves us. But we also have to remember that God is sort of the administrator of justice, right? He's, he's sort of this governmental... Uh, authority in the universe, right? He, he maintains the moral fabric of the universe. And so in this theory, the atonement 
is not an exact substitute. It's not like a one-to-one -one substitute for each and every person's individual sins and therefore a, a substitute for the exact penalty that each and every person must pay. But it's more, okay, God, God loves us and he wants to show his mercy and his grace to us, but he's also the administrator of, of justice and the, the moral fabric of the universe. So how can he show mercy and grace, but at the same time uphold sort of the dignity of the, the morality of the universe, right? And so it's kind of this idea that, um, let's see here. So how did, how did I write it down? Let's see if I can say it better if I'm just reading. So atonement is not a substitute for the penalty of each of, that each of us deserves, but a symbol of the horror, seriousness, and consequences of sin to deter evil and uphold the moral fabric of God's law even as he chooses to not punish and to forgive those who repent at his discretion. And so in this view, basically, the, uh, they believe that the moral influence view was insufficient for actually leading to true godly living because there was no consequences attached to a failure to live uh, a holy life or to live for God. And so the satisfaction of the atonement is not to pay the penalty for our individual sins per se, or to satisfy the offended character of God, but rather to uphold the moral fabric of God's law. God does not demand exact you know, payment to satisfy, but only a satisfaction sufficient for moral government, sufficient to convey the gravity of sin. Like I am showing grace because I love you, but I still need to convey to you this, the seriousness and the gravity of sin, right? And so that is what the cross accomplishes. But like I said at the beginning, there's sort of a lack of uh, explicit biblical evidence for this, for, for this view. All right, last one. We're almost there. So we'll, we'll talk about this last one, and then um, I, I don't see a clock, so I don't know what we're doing. We'll just do a little bit of processing, and then we'll be done, okay? So the, the final view we're going to talk about is penal substitution, which I've always said is the worst name for anything ever. <laughs> Why not just call it penalty substitution? I don't know. I'll never understand it. <laughs> Penalty substitution. <laughs> so uh, there, uh, there are many verses. I, I just picked a couple. I don't even remember which ones I picked, so let's just read them. Um, I think I picked some verses. Yeah, okay, so Romans chapter 3, verses 23 through 26. So this is a key passage. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement. And actually, uh, some of your versions have a better word there, a sacrifice of propitiation. Through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance, he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. I think I have one more verse. Maybe I do. Do I have? No, I don't. Okay. <laughs> Sorry. Um, and so, yeah, this is, and so in this view, and this view kind of came into uh, formation during the Reformation period, right? So, you know, uh, Martin Luther, John Calvin, the reformer. So this is like a, a view that, I would say that this is probably the predominant view that Protestant Christians hold, right? This penal sub penalty substitution. 
And so it's kind of, uh, it conveys this idea that, of God's character, right? That God is both loving, right? Which is why he wants to show grace, but he's also just. So it's, it's similar to the, um, the governmental theory, but that, that God, there's this sort of balance of God's character, right? That even though he is loving and merciful, he's also just, right? And as the, the judge of the universe, that he has a responsibility to uphold justice, right? And so our predicament as, you know, his beloved creation who have fallen into sin and fallen into condemnation has kind of put him into this bind, right? Where he, he, it puts these different aspects of his character and different aspects of his desire into conflict because he loves us and he wants to show us mercy, but at the same time, he, uh, he, he, he has a responsibility to execute justice, right? And so there's sort of this bind. And so the law necessitates punishment, but God's love desires mercy. And so in the, the verse that we just read in Romans chapter 3, it talks about how God, he showed his righteousness. Or maybe another way to say it is he showed uh, the rightness of his character by, one, it says that he showed forbearance, right? That he didn't execute judgment on our sins, right? He, he passed over them. So that in Christ, he could offer a propitiation. So the reason why I pointed out the, the difference in word is because um, the word atonement just kind of generally means like, uh, the word atonement just generally kind of just means like, I've done something wrong to you, and so I'm going to do something to try to make it up to you, okay? General. Uh, the word propitiation is a more specific term, which is more like appeasing the wrath of a god, right? Offering a sacrifice to appease the wrath of a god. And so it says that God, you know, he showed forbearance. He didn't execute the judgment that was due to us, right? He, he patiently waited and passed over that so that Christ at the right time could offer himself as a propitiation, a sacrifice that turned away the wrath of a God, right? So that he could show himself to be both just, right? He executed justice. He maintained justice. He didn't violate that aspect of his character, but he also then became the justifier of us, right? That he, because in his view, he satisfied the requirements of justice. Now he could offer forgiveness and grace freely, right? And so that's the idea of, uh, of penal substitution, that Jesus took the penalty that was due to us, and um, because he absorbed that for us, God was then able to uh, offer us forgiveness. There's a sacrifice offered as a substitute for the sinner, sacrificial, um, oh, okay, sorry. And so uh, I think, and, and I think this is an area, because there's a lot of objections to this nowadays. And I think some of you guys in here probably have a lot of objections to this view. Write those questions down. I think we'll probably have to come back to this in the Q&A because, you know, we're short on time. So we can kind of come back to some of the objections. But one objection that I, I think I'll mention is that I think one of the objections is just that, well, this is such a recent view, right? It came up during, you know, the, the, the Reformation period, which would be like, I don't know, 1500 or something like that, right? So how could such a recent view be the correct view as so many Protestant Christians believe. You know, they kind of see this as sort of the atonement theory. And I think one, one thing that you can see is in the writing of the church fathers, there actually is a history of, of them describing this without necessarily developing it. Like this idea that there was something in God that needed the atonement that Jesus offered, right? So it's there, but it's not it's not elaborated on. But I think the, the main thing that we need to catch on the penal substitution view is that 
like I think a lot of us who have grown up in Protestant churches have probably like you know heard analogies. I've even used analogies myself, like legal analogies. There's like a judge and he wants to forgive, or like his son is like appearing before him in court. Like you've probably heard these different analogies to kind of like help relate, and I think they're helpful. But actually, I think the the proper way to understand the penal substitution view is you have to understand that it arises out of the context of the Old Testament sacrificial system, right? That, that Jesus' sacrifice on the cross can only be understood uh, properly within the context of the Old Testament sacrifices, right? And what God commanded his people to do and, and, and gain the meaning of it from there. And so, you know, in the Old Testament sacrificial system, you have this idea of, you know, sacrifices that are offered as a substitute in the place of a sinner, you know, a sacrificial animal had to be offered, which was without defect or blemish. You know, the offerer would lay their hands uh, on the animal that was to be sacrificed, uh, kind of, you know, sort of communicating this idea of, like, I'm transferring my guilt onto this, this innocent being, right? And um, that it is, it is taking a penalty in my place, right? And so, um, and so it's, it, it's being made on my behalf. And a uh, couple other things, like, uh, let's see. So, like, in, uh, in, in Luke chapter 22, Jesus explicitly connects himself to the imagery that it's in Isaiah chapter 53 that talks about, you know, um, a servant of God dying for the sins of the people. Uh, Hebrews, all, basically all over the book of Hebrews, you can't really make any sense of the book of Hebrews unless you are looking at the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross as some sort of substitutionary atonement. And so, um, you know, there's a lot of verses that we could look at. Uh, we're kind of running short on time, but let me just run through this. In the New Testament, Jesus interpreted his own life and death as fulfilling Isaiah 53, like I said. Uh, he saw his suffering as, and death as a primary reason for his coming, Mark chapter 8. Jesus indicated giving of his life as a means for freeing humanity from, from bondage. Jesus saw himself as a substitute, John chapter 15, right? He said, I lay down, my, he lays down his life for his friends. John chapter one, verse 29, uh, Jesus is called, behold the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. John chapter 17, uh, verse 51, my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. And then all over the rest of the New Testament. And so that's kind of the idea of penal substitution. Okay, let me, uh, let me try to, so like I said, I think there's um, a lot of questions probably in the room that we could address, and so I want to encourage you guys to write those down and submit them. But I want to kind of just land the plane because I think we're probably close on time here. Because um, I, I gave you guys the spoiler at the beginning, right? I said at the very beginning that the conclusion of this was going to be, you know, we should let all of these aspects of the atonement, because all of them have at least some, some support scripturally, that we should let all of these aspects deepen and enrich, it, enrich our understanding of what the life, death of Jesus were about. And so I've just kind of identified what I think are sort of the dominant themes here. So here's, here's what I think are the dominant themes that we see. One is love, right? The love of God. That through the atonement, through Jesus' life and death, we, we have an assurance, we know with confidence that God's heart towards us is love. That no matter who you are, no matter what you've done, no matter how far away you feel like you are from God, there is no doubt that when you come to him that you will be met with grace and mercy and love and compassion, right? And so that's, I think, a dominant theme. Another theme is sacrifice, that I think we have to see what Jesus did on the cross in some shape or form as a sacrifice. He was sacrificing himself on our behalf. 
And I think we also have to see it as propitiation. I think the, the Old Testament sacrificial system and the connections of Jesus to that demand that we see it as some sort of uh, propitiation, right? That this, this is a sacrifice that is being offered on our behalf to take our penalty, to, to, to turn away uh, the penalty that we deserve. Okay? And I think that's a connection that we do have to make in, on some level. Uh, I guess with that, substitution, right? It, it's something that we could not do for ourselves. That whatever it is that Jesus is doing on the cross, he's doing something that we could not do for ourselves. We needed what he is doing. And, and, and to turn to him, we have to acknowledge, I, whatever it is, like I, I kind of compare it to like a car, right? Like a lot of us in here probably don't know in detail how a car works. But most of us in here know how to drive a car, right? We know how to get in it and get it from point A to point B. But if I push you on it, most of us probably can't describe exactly how it works. And so if you're in here and you're like, I don't understand exactly how the atonement works, all this stuff that we're talking about, that's okay. You know what I mean? But for the most, like, if you're totally content in just understanding, you know what? When, I, when Jesus went to the cross, it showed me how much God loves me. And I know that whatever it is that he was doing on the cross, I need that so that I can be forgiven and so that I can have a new life. If that's all you've got and that gets you from point A to point B, that's totally fine, right? But I think if you're looking under the hood of the cross, that's where you get some of this stuff, right? That, that there, there's something in there that we need and, and to have a better understanding of that, we can look at the Old Testament sacrificial system to understand that. And then lastly, that, that whatever Jesus uh, accomplished on the cross, it earns a salvation for me. But I think a corrective we can make here is that um, a lot of times in our kind of Western Christianity, uh, salvation has been too narrow, right? Salvation has been defined too narrowly as just God forgives my sins, right? And I, I get to go to heaven. But I think a, a, a broader definition of what salvation means is one, yes, forgiveness of sins. We can be forgiven. But two, reconciliation, right? We are reconciled with God, but we are also reconciled with ourselves, with our true identity, who I, I really am, who I was created to be, and we are reconciled with one another, right? And release, right? That like the Christus Victor view that there's something that shifted in the spiritual realm because of what Jesus did. There's a victory possible now that was not possible before Jesus came. And so there is a release that is available to us that when we turn to Jesus, we can turn to him and find new life and even a new world, right? So not just me personally and my individual sins, but that as we come together as his people and address the sin of the world, right, the sin of the systems of the world, that, that there's a change that is possible now because of what Jesus has done that was not possible before, right? And then lastly, this example, right, that, that in Christ we have this example that of not only, you know, this example of what it looks like when, you know, God loves us, but his example of what it looks like when we live truly for him. Right? And so I think that's a kind of a, a better and fuller definition of what salvation means. And all of these things come to us through 